turn back with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy, to the letter of 1 Timothy. We're going to be in 1 Timothy verses 18 through 20 this morning together, 1 Timothy verses 18 through 20. Uh, As we have walked through this first chapter, we're coming to the end of it as it's been numbered for us. Uh, Paul has taken this chapter so far to emphasize to Timothy as he's left him behind on a trip subsequent to his Roman imprisonment. He's left him there with his church in Ephesus that Paul loves dearly, that he spent three years at one point with. Um, He's left Timothy there to teach and to instruct that church in the importance of sound doctrine or theology. And the, uh, the principle or the truth that there is a, uh, there must be, that there should be a consistency between uh, that theology and how we live and walk. And so we'll often, uh, in terms of terminology, we'll talk about orthodoxy, right? Truth, doctrine, theology that is held to by the church. It's orthodox. We'll also talk about orthopraxy, on how we walk, the practical things of life. All right? And we should never have uh, an inconsistent, we do, but the teaching of Scripture and our efforts and our seeking to grow in the faith, right, is that we, our life begins, is consistent with the truths that we profess. And so that's just a, that's a principle that must be at the center of the life of the church, that we must teach doctrine, theology. As we preach, we preach theo- theologically. As we teach, we teach theologically. When we pray, we pray theologically. When we sit around to talk with one another about Scripture, we, we talk about theology because it's these right these truths that inform how we walk. And so we must understand them, and then we must apply them to our lives. And so that's what Paul's referring to back in verse 5, that we would have a sincere faith, a faith that is literally unhypocritical, right? That our walk and what we profess to be true come together. And so verses 8 through 11, if we're understanding, if we're interpreting, if we're applying Scripture correctly, uh, then we now have something at the center of the church uh, that's at the center of our preaching and our teaching, and it's at the center of our fellowship and our discipleship, and it's at the center now of our speaking to the issues of our day and our proclamation of Christ. We have something now that is true and that is a making known of the goodness of God and the grace of God. And so when we talk about who God is in any aspect and that perfection of who He is being made known, that's what we're talking about when we say the glory of God. Uh, I like John Piper when he says it's the, the holiness of God is God's perfections being completely Him and not us, but it's the hiddenness, right? There's a certain mystery to how true God is and how sovereign God is and how powerful God is and how faithful God is. Like we can say it's infinite, but infinity is a mystery to us. But when we see God be faithful and we see God be good and we see God be gracious and merciful, that that's God's holiness being made known Uh, It's a physical thing from God the Father. He dwells in unapproachable light. His holiness manifests itself. And so we talk about the glory of God. And so when we know truth from Scripture, and that's the center of the life of the church and of our fellowship and our discipleship and our proclamation, there's a very real making known of the glory of God. And so Paul was calling that this glorious gospel or the gospel of the glory of God. And when that happens, then there's a remembrance of the working of the gospel in our life. And so Paul in 12 through 17 went back to that part of his life. 
And he remembered the working of the gospel in his life and God's grace to him. And you got that, that great statement that he makes uh, that, that it's in me as the foremost, right, or as the, the worst of sinners that Christ would demonstrate his perfect patience and as, as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And so theology works its way out so that others would know the Father and the Son and the Spirit and then come to know Christ because of a people walking in the love of God. And so after Paul reminisces and remembers and gives his own gospel testimony, we come back in verse 18. He goes back to what he started to write Timothy about. Does Paul ever do that? He gets started and he just one thing connects to another and he's over there. I think he's a he's a pretty good preacher, you know. That happens to us sometimes. You're working through stuff and you just get excited about something and it's not in your sermon and all of a sudden you're over there. But man, it's good, you know. And then you got to come back to what you were talking about. And that's that's really what Paul's doing here in verse 18. He's coming back to uh, what he started with and what he really was talking about. Uh, and he wants to come back and refocus on that, verse 18 through 20. And so let's read that together there this morning. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. And so this morning, as we look at verses 18 through 20, I want to talk about persevering in the faith. You remember that as Paul's concern as he writes this letter. It's scattered throughout this letter. It's about the life of the church, really. Some have called this the handbook of the manual for church life. It's, it's not really that, uh, except that Paul's concern that we persevere in the faith gets him talking about church matters and how the life of the church helps protect the faith and promote the faith and our persevering in the faith. And so let's talk about persevering persevering in the faith by fighting the good fight. Have you ever wondered what that means right there when you read that? Fighting that you would fight the good fight, he says to Timothy. And so let's define uh, what the good fight is and then maybe discern secondly what the good fight isn't. And then we'll, Paul describes what is done when the good fight isn't being fought. And that's what we'll look at together this morning. So what is the good fight? What is the good fight? Verses 18, the beginning of verse 19. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, Paul says. Uh, What is the good fight? Well, before we define it there, Uh, The good fight, Paul indicates to us, begins with receiving good theology. It begins with receiving instruction and sound theology. Not just uh, our faith, our walk begins in putting our faith in Christ. But that's just the beginning of the fight. That's just where we begin. And, And so fighting the good fight from that point on begins with our receiving instruction and learning sound theology. We take that there from Paul saying this command, I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. This is a very endearing thing by Paul. He calls him my son there. Uh, He's his child in the faith. He said up there in the introduction, um, There's something that I am entrusting to you. It's a banking term. Uh, It refers to the idea of someone bringing you their money uh, for safekeeping, right? Today, it would be similar like you taking your precious documents or a collection of something that you have labored over or a precious item from a relative, something that you want to make sure you keep safe, right? Thieves steal Right? Rust destroys, moths eat things. And so you want to keep it safe. Where do you take it? 
Does anyone still use them? Safety deposit boxes. Do banks still have those? All right. I don't use one, apparently. Maybe I don't have anything to put in one. I'm not sure. I need to go look. All right. But you go to a bank, to a safety deposit box, and you put it there to be safe. So you drop it there. You entrust it to them, right, expecting that when you come back for it, it's going to be there, right? And so that's the meaning of entrust. Well, Paul has carefully and systematically and thoroughly over the course of a few years instructed Timothy in the truths of Scripture, sound doctrine and theology. And that systematic instruction in theology is the deposit that Paul has entrusted to Timothy. If we remember from 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says, what you have heard from me in his second letter to Timothy. Do you remember? It's a verse we often know. What you've heard from me, the same word in trust to faithful men who will also be able to teach that to others. Right? But there's a, this deposit of the faith that is sound doctrine. It's the truths of Scripture. And those have been handed to Paul directly from Christ. And now Paul to Timothy. Paul's done that with others, but he's talking to Timothy. And so if Jesus were the first leg in the relay, right, the baton, right, is the, the deposit of faith. And that's been handed to Paul. Paul now has handed that to Timothy. Timothy now is to hand that to faithful men. And that baton is to be passed from one generation to the next and to the next and to the next. Right? He says, this command I entrust to you, that takes us back to verse 3. I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain at Ephesus. So it might be tempting to say, the command was to remain at Ephesus. Why are you talking about doctrine? But his command was to, his urging was to remain there, right? Uh, so that you would command or instruct or charge certain men not to teach strange doctrine. And so that's this command here that I entrust to you is the command not to teach strange, unsound, false doctrine. It's not true from Scripture. That's what's been entrusted to Timothy, right? And so that has, we're here today because Timothy was faithful and others were faithful. And that baton has been handed from one generation to the next and to the next and to the next. And so there's something we'll say often uh, about this that right, the one generation that's faithful and that teaches faithfully, the next generation, right, will... Uh, deny the truth in some way. They'll still try to stay close to uh, the life of the church. And then the next generation after that will walk away from the church altogether. And we see that happen over and over and over and over throughout the history of the church. And so this is a vital thing to the life of the church that we teach and that we receive sound doctrine. Doctrine is not everyone's favorite topic of study. Right? But it's a vital area of study in the life of the church. And so the church, meaning the pastor, the elders, the leadership, the teachers, must teach theologically and good theology. And the church, meaning us, all of us as members, uh, should be seeking out and receiving instruction in theological truth. We need to be taking the baton from those that have gone before us. Right? And so ask yourself when you're reading Scripture, it's, it's not uh, a difficult pursuit, but when you're reading a text, what does it say about who God is? Uh, when you see it say, God our Father, our Father who art in heaven, how is God our Father? And don't just kind of surmise and pontificate on your own. Go back to Scripture and look about what it says about how God is our Father. There's Several, there's many passages about God being the Father, right? Go look for those. How is God a, a shepherd? How is Jesus the good shepherd? What is 
prayer? What is saving faith? What is baptism? When do we do it and how do we do it? Ask those questions and seek out answers and then compare your answers with others so that we can be strengthened and foundationed together in the sound doctrines of the faith. That's where the good fight begins, is receiving instruction and sound theology. Uh, Secondly, it requires trusting your calling. Trusting your calling. He says to Timothy here, I've entrusted this command to you in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. In accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. You. Now, it's, it's unclear here what the prophecies were, what the content of the prophecies were. The closest we can get is probably 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. You can look over there. It's just a couple of pages to the right. Where Paul says there to Timothy, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you with or by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. That's the ESV version. It reads a little cleaner there. It's a little more understandable. Don't neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy or with prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And so uh, if you do some studying of Scripture and in, in the New Testament and you ask the question, what is prophecy. We're more familiar with Old Testament prophecy. And when we look at Old Testament prophecy, we tend to focus in on future prophecy, right? What's yet to come. And sometimes when we do that, because that's the the stuff that kind of boggles the mind, it's the questions that aren't answered yet. And so it's the things we like to read and think about and consider But when we get caught up there, and that's a good area of study, we often miss that most of what the prophets are doing, even as they talk about what's yet to come, as God's making that known through them, they're going back to what God has already said. And they're saying what God has said is true. And they're talking to God's people. Remember when God said you're coming into the land. And remember when God said if you are faithful to me and you love the Lord with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, you will be fruitful in the land. But remember when you don't, he doesn't say if you don't, he says back there in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 and 30, 31, when you don't, I'll bring destruction and I'll bring discipline and I'll bring judgment upon you. And so the prophets are always speaking to the nation of Israel in a time of God's impending judgment or in his judgment about that text and that you need to return to the Lord. That passage we love from Joel, return to God with weeping and gnashing and mourning and rending your garments, right? And come back before the Lord your God. Just a a loose paraphrase of that text, but that's one we like a lot, right? That it's talking about what God has already said is true. And so in the New Testament, when we look at prophecy, we often define it this way, that it's the, the gift of teaching or proclaiming God's revelation. And so the most likely understanding of what this is, is that when Timothy was ordained into the ministry, by the group of elders, that he was ordained into that ministry with teaching from Scripture about what the ministry is and how to go about it. And what you find in First Timothy is Paul reiterating some of those lessons to Timothy. And it makes a lot of sense to understand it that way, that it's about uh, his, uh, what it looks like to be in the ministry, because Paul says that by them you fight the good fight. And so this thing that I've left you to do there in the life of the church, you've been instructed from God's word, from scripture, who, what the church is and what the role of the minister is in the church and in sound instruction in good theology and teaching that to the church. And so go now do that thing that you've been ordained and called to do. And so not all of us sitting here today uh, have had that experience um, ourselves. 
but it, you might have it, uh, and you might be surprised how it comes about. Uh, John Knox is an old stalwart of the faith. There's a couple of great stories that kind of help show us what this looks like sometimes. Uh, he's from England. He'd been teaching in St. Andrews. His teaching uh, was supposed to be kind of an on-the-side thing, but more and more people kept coming to it because he was a man who knew Scripture and its truths. And the people began to urge him that he would uh, take the place of preacher, pastor upon him, that he would step into that role of ministry. But it says he, uh, it's reported that he utterly refused, alleging he would not run where God had not called him. Now there's a great humility there. And so they, uh, they went around him. All right, and so they went to some other pastors there and they counseled with them and everybody confirmed and affirmed that John Knox had a gift for proclaiming the word of God. And so a Sunday came, Knox was in church and a man named John Ruff was preaching and John Ruff directed his words to John Knox. And so there's one of those moments where you actually are preaching at somebody in the service. You know, I will often get the question, uh, how'd you know? you were preaching right at me, right? And I didn't know. Or I did know, but no, I wasn't preaching right at you. It was just in the text that Sunday. Uh, but this time he directs his words right to John Knox. He says, brother, you should not be offended, albeit that I speak to you what I have in charge, even from all those who are here present, which is this. In other words, everyone has asked me to say this to you. In the name of God and of his son, Jesus Christ, and in the name of these that presently call you by my mouth, I charge you that you refuse not this holy vocation, but that you take upon you the public office and charge of preaching, even as you look to avoid God's displeasure and desire that he shall multiply his graces with you. And in the end, he said to those that were present, was this not your charge to me? And do you not approve of this vocation? And everyone answered, yes, it was, and Amen. We approve it. Upon that, John Knox, abashed, burst forth in the most abundant tears and withdrew himself to his chamber to consider what had been said to him. And at his death, it was said of him, he bore God's message, fearing not the faces of men. All right, that, that was a calling and a confirmation and affirmation of the church to a man to stand up and preach the word. Uh, another great story like this is John Calvin. Some of you may know this one. There was a man by the last name of Farrell uh, who was trying to do begin gospel work in the area of Geneva, Switzerland. He considered it to be uh, a strategic location, being that it was close to France and close to northern Israel, uh, Italy. Um, and so he was trying to begin work there. And then Calvin comes through and Farrell, knowing of Calvin, I think Calvin was around 27 years old at the time and had already put out an edition or three of his institutes. And it says, uh, putting on, uh, he, he urged Calvin to stay there and partner with him in gospel ministry. And Calvin said no, because he felt like he could do more through his pen. And so then it says in the reporting of this story, putting on something of the authority of an ancient prophet, Pharaoh then commanded the young traveler to remain in labor in Geneva, and he imprecated, that's saying he cursed, his studies, the curse upon his studies, the curse of God, should he make them the pretext for declining the call now addressed to him. It was the voice not of Pharaoh, but of God that now spoke to Calvin, so Calvin felt and instantly he obeyed. And Calvin spent the next 28 years in ministry there in Geneva. And so many of us, we don't have that kind of a call. But we do have the call, the gospel that's on us already. We have the call as disciples of Christ to go make disciples. Right? Which means that you know your Christ in whom you have believed and you're willing to share about him with others, no matter the cost. That you consider uh, a life and the eternity of that life more valuable than your own. And that you would share Jesus with those who are around you. We all need to think about that more often. 
than we often do. Life can be so overwhelming. And yet it's in the midst of that that we need to most keep our eyes upon our Savior for our own encouragement and also in that moment to be loving others in the love of God and sharing Christ with others so that when they put their faith in Christ, then you do what? You teach them all that I have commanded. And that's not like, hey, okay, I did that part, bring them to church. That's where you step into discipleship with them. You now walk alongside them. You now teach the truths of Scripture. What are the foundational theological truths that you now need to know that orient and help you explain and understand and walk in a life of faithfulness and worship and honor to God? And so we can all identify this with, uh, with this from that angle, right? From that angle. And so Paul says, now having entrusted this to you, this being in accordance with uh, prophecy that has been made to you, teaching to him, instruction to him, that by them you fight the good fight. And so what is this good fight? Uh, You fight the good fight now. This good fight is where we began this morning, the importance of maintaining the consistency between orthodoxy, doctrine, and orthopraxy, living. That those two things match one another. That's the good fight. That by these things, you would fight the good fight. This word for command, this word for fight, the verb and the noun, the fight that is good. This is all military language. You're waging war in a sense, Paul says. It's not a physical war. Uh, It's a a spiritual war. This is a just war. This is a good war. Anytime we actually go to war with someone, there's always the question, should we be at war? There's always that thing in us that we know that there's a possibility of selfish motives and selfish justifications. And there's always probably some of that in actual war for us often, right? But here there's none of that. There's nothing gray here. There's nothing objectionable here because this fight is a fight about truth and it's a fight about doctrine and the truths of the gospel. This is your hill to die on and this is a fight that you fight to the death, but it's not just a fight for truth. It's a fight for holiness in your own life, understanding truth, and then walking in righteousness. He says that you would fight the good fight, right? The end of verse 18, keeping faith in a good conscience. That's a a structure there we call apposition. Okay, so that it's, it's when you take something, you say something, and you don't really have any connectives to what you're saying after that. You just like a couple of bricks, jam them against each other with no mortar. Okay, so it's like saying, hey, there goes Rick, the pastor. If we were to say that more grammatically full, hey, there goes Rick, he is the pastor, right? You actually have subjects and predicates and Verbs and objects and all those parts, that grammatical soup. But you can shorten that and say, hey, there's Rick, the pastor. Hey, there goes Joe Henderson, the coach of the football team. Right? And you can jam those things together. So he says that by what you've received, you would fight the good fight here. And that good fight, he jams right up against it. That's keeping faith and keeping a good conscience. These two things together that you're having, or the word is holding on to, that you're keeping a grasp on, faith. And it's, it's a little murky there. That could be your faith in Christ, subjective faith. Uh, but as we've often said, when you're doing that, you're believing something that is true. And so it really pulls all of that together. That you're keeping the faith, that you're keeping sound doctrine and a good conscience. The faith goes to doctrine and then a good conscience. When you know what's true and then you go do something else, what happens right back here? 
right? When I was a kid, my grandmother made the cookies. And they were good cookies, you know? Or she made a cake. It was only on Sunday. And so it was there for like three or four more days in the oven. Don't you have any more of that? You got to ask. Uh-huh. Okay, I'll ask. Yeah. As soon as she was gone, where was I at? The oven. And that thing would just, you know. She had to make sure, like, she's out of the house, you know. What are you doing? You know, get away from the food, you know. I was 13 and growing like a weed, you know. And I would just, I would try to take a knife and just, you know, not a whole piece. You don't want to be greedy, right? Just, just a little bit, you know, a snack, right? But you know, because you were told not to do that thing the whole time. You're just jumpy. You think grandma's going to come in the back porch door right there and get you. You know, you're going to be caught. Of course, as soon as she opens it and sees the crumbs everywhere, right? And the cake's like two pieces smaller by now because all the kids have come back and done that like three times each, you know? Right? Kids don't do that. That's disobedience. Okay? They're all like, oh, I can't. No. You can't do that. Right? It's not just about truth but it's about a good conscience that we know what truth is. And because of that truth, now we recognize sin, not just the reality that sin still exists within us, but now we can identify sin for what it is, right? And then we can begin to fight that sin with the truth so that we can put that sin, as we say, to death in the body, in our flesh and in our life. And so now, uh, that truth begins to change us, right? How does that change what we think about an issue? How does that truth change what our hearts delight in and take joy in the most? How does that truth now begin to change the words we say and how we speak to others, Right? And this is the great dichotomy that so often exists in our culture and so often in churches. We got folks that love theology, can teach theology, can't really help folks walk it out over here, or are very lacking in compassion and grace. Right? The great irony that all this theology really is about God's goodness to us and his grace to us in Jesus Christ, it all comes to the point, the tip of the spear in the cross. And yet we can't be gracious and compassionate as we apply truth to life. Or we come over here and we say, man, that stuff's just, it's dry or it's meaningless or it's not practical or it just divides. And so we're just going to come over here and be practical or compassionate. And yet then we have nothing to guide us and give us wisdom as we do that. Truth and the walk of our life must coincide together. And so fighting the good fight is understanding the faith, deepening our understanding of those truths, and then letting our lives be conformed to those truths so that we have a sincere faith, an unhypocritical faith that those two things match up together. That's the good fight. And so secondly, then what does it look like to discern uh, when, when someone's not fighting the good fight? Um, you know, we took more time on that because that takes a little more time to clarify. Once you know that, the rest of it makes a lot of sense, right? If we are dedicated as a church, if we are dedicated as individuals to growing in the knowledge of truth and then applying that truth to life, then what that does, it's like turning a light on in a dark room, right? That's an age old illustration, but it's a true one. You have different light bulbs. You can turn on one that's like 12 watts. You're going to be able to see, aren't you? All right. But if you're looking for something that might be tucked away, it might still be hard to find it. If you could turn on one that's 120 watts, you're going to be able to see a whole lot more, right? And so the more we learn truth, the greater the light is in the room, so to speak. 
the more that we dedicate ourselves individually to truth and then as a church to the study of truth, the more the light of the glory of God that's found in the face of Jesus Christ exists in our lives and among God's people. And you know what happens to folks who don't want any of that truth? They react like a bunch of cave-dwelling animals, right? Walk into a cave, so to speak, and turn a light on all the animals, and they do what? Whoa! Right? I'm melting! You know, it's Wizard of Oz, you know, it's like they're going to die, right? Because the light is too bright. And if the light of, of the glory of God made known through Jesus Christ, now made known in the gospel and through us, just, have you ever heard stadium lights come on? Just, comes on, right? In the people of God, folks who can't stand that light, do this, and you'll see some of them go, oh, and go, wait a second, what is that? Wow. And you'll see others go, oh, and slink right out the side door, right? And that's what you want. We've kind of been taught in our day that what the church is supposed to be is a place where we just want everybody to show up and everybody to feel comfortable. It's not supposed to be that place. That's not what the church is. That's not what this is on Sunday morning. This time, this is time for God's people to turn the lights on to their life through the Word of God and for that to come up. And the life of the church is for God's people when we gather together. And what you do, I think I've thought of this often of late, you're supposed to be out, right? Jesus was sent into the world, and now I send them, O Lord, my disciples, not taking them out of the world, but they're sent into the world. And so you go out with the big old spotlight, right? And you shine, you speak, you live out your life because it has truth and life coincide, declares Christ. Your words speak Christ. And then there'll be folks out there who will go, oh, oh that's, that reeks, right? Get that stench out of my nose, Scripture says it'll be the aroma of death to some. And they're going to refuse it. And then there'll be others who go, that, that's interesting. What? That kind of smells good. And it's the aroma of life to them. They don't even know what it is yet. But they're intrigued. And they're attracted. And those are the folks you bring back to the life of the church so they can get greater exposure to the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as it's made known to his people. That's what's supposed to happen. Because he says here, right, you keep in, it's keeping the good faith and good conscience, which some have rejected. Some have rejected that. It's a strong term. It means to violently shove aside, right? It's the light has been shined. You're walking alongside like, hey, can I let you know? You're, you're like that little puppy, you know, the, there's those, the old Looney Tunes, you have the big bulldog, and then you have the little yappy one that's jumping on his back. Hey, he's like your, you know, four-year-old that won't stop talking, you know, but you're talking about Jesus all the time. And this person just turns around and goes, go away, right? Stop it. I don't want any more of that right now from you. To which you go, I'm still praying for you. You know, hey, I thought of this the other day, and you just get, you know. But these folks here, they they have rejected sound doctrine. They've rejected the gospel, and in that they're rejecting Christ. It's a violent shoving away. It's easier to see when the lights are on and turned up. It's easier to see when we're centered on sound doctrine and theology because there's a there's a, rege- a violent rejection of it and it says and then sh- suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith right that now you don't have a rudder there's no truth there to steer by 
And that's, that comes from, the, it's the same idea uh, that we find from Paul in uh, it's Ephesians 4, right? Uh, that we find in Ephesians 4, uh, that you're, if, when you're little children, you're not grown up yet in the gospel, that you can be tossed about by waves and every wind of doctrine, or it's the thing that you find in James uh, 1 verse 6, uh, that to doubt makes you like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And this can happen to believers. This can happen uh, to expose unbelievers. It can be both, right? Because we can have believers that are children in the faith in such a way that they're being tossed and pushed every direction by every idea that's not true from Scripture. We're rudderless yet. He says, if you stay there, right, if this is what you're going to do and you're going to deny that truth, you shipwreck the faith, right, that you end up wrecked. Right? Paul has seen this before. It's a common thing in the life of the church. Uh, he says, some have rejected. That's a generalizing statement. I've seen this before. And particularly here in Ephesus, among those some here are these two, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And so have you ever seen that happen to anybody? Where somebody rejects the truths of the faith and they go out and shipwreck their lives? Has that maybe ever been true of you in your life at some point, right? In the past, not paying attention to truth, not living out the truth, professing the truth, but it's not being lived out in your life, right? So there's no foundation or ballast or rudder that keeps you on the way. There's no consistency between your doctrine and your living. You end up living a lie and then you shipwreck an aspect or all are part of your life, right? That We've seen that happen here over the years uh, and seen that happen. And so how does the church then, lastly, fight the good fight when someone is not committed to staying in the fight? What does the church do? When someone's rejecting truth, you got people gathering together according to the truths of God and someone is rejecting that truth and you see them headed for the rocks. You see the damage and the desolation that could come from that. What is the church to do? This is a tough area. This is something you could spend a whole sermon on and really a whole series on, but we're just going to touch on it because Paul does right here at the end of the text. Uh, It's essentially church discipline. That's what it is. Um, To which a lot of people feel like when you start talking about church discipline, that it's all we're doing is lining up our wounded and shooting them. Right? You ever heard that said? That's not what's going on, right? There's a difference between wounded, right, and engaged with Scripture and the gospel and in the life of the church, even if it's tentative, working on and searching for healing. That's one thing. There's a difference between wounded and walking in wickedness. There's a difference between wounded and rejecting the truths of God and preferring instead something God has said is evil to that truth. That's different. And so we have to just say that at the beginning. Those are altogether different things, right? That here's what is behind this quickly. If God is who he is, and he is a holy God, perfect in everything and true, and then he has spoken his truths, and he's made known his truth and the love of God to us in Jesus Christ and in his death. And if we're a people that claim to know the power of God and the love of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And if Christ died for sin to release us from the power of sin and increasingly the presence of sin and eventually to perfectly remove all aspects of sin from us, if that's what's happened and that's where we're headed, then we are not to put up with sin just residing in our lives. And we're not to put up with sin residing in one another's lives. There's a greater concern, right, at play than just you and I getting along. And that's the name of the Lord and the glory of God and the goodness that comes for you and for me when someone corrects us 
and shows us our sin so that we can acknowledge it and then repent of it and have our life increasingly look like the truth of God and have those match up. And so when someone is rejecting God's truth, you don't just like go, ha, gotcha, bam. You know, that's not how this works. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, this is intentional, this is compassionate, this is laborious, right? This is time after time of meeting with somebody, going to scripture. How do you understand that to be? What's this scripture look like? Why do you hold to that? Why do you keep doing this in life? Like, dude, and will you acknowledge that as sin or not? Maybe I end up finding in that process I'm, I'm off base because that can happen. But we are working together for Ephesians for the unity of the faith and understanding of doctrine. But if it comes out over a long period of time that somebody just is intractably unrepentant, they will not relent of that sin. Paul, these two men right? I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. That's a hard moment right there. That I have 1 Corinthians 5 delivered them to, or here handed them over to Satan. We don't know ultimately in that moment. You have somebody saying, I believe in Christ. But the reality of scripture is if you believe in Christ, your walk will show it. You may be a child in the faith and you may be full grown or somewhere up there, you know, mature in the faith, but your walk is going to evidence that you are in Christ somehow. And if nothing else, that when somebody comes and says, hey, you see this scripture, this truth, and you see how life is being lived and those don't match. If nothing else in that moment, you go, oh gosh, I didn't know. You're right. And you go before the Lord. And you confess sin, and then you get that person to help you think through and work through and have some accountability to growing out of that. If nothing else, that happens, right? If nothing else. So if, if that doesn't happen, and they're saying no, 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 and get that away from me, then you hand them over to Satan. That can be somebody now that is an unbeliever. That can be somebody who's a believer and just stubborn, right? But the concern is for the salvation of their soul. We want to make sure they persevere in the faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, this word here, uh, that they would be taught. It's a difficult word. It's a word to be instructed through physical punishment, It's the word Pilate uses of Jesus. I'll punish him and release him. He thinks he's going to be able to whip him, teach him a lesson, and then let him go. It's the word used in 1 Corinthians 11 when the church isn't observing communion correctly. And it says God was disciplining there his people. Right? Uh, It's what Paul uses uh, so that uh, that's, we're we're going to remove the encirclement of the church from them. We're going to back up. It's, it's kind of like uh, when you're picking captains and someone says, who wants to be the pickers? And everybody steps back and you leave two people out there. All right, you just, uh, oh, we're alone now. And you just, you pull the umbrella of the church back, that covering from their lives so that they would be taught in a difficult manner by Satan so that Satan who rules in the world uh, can do whatever it is that he wants to do but it's so they'll be taught not to blaspheme. The concern there ultimately is persevering faith, salvation itself. They are denying the truth of God and in doing that slandering God and the work of God that's in the gospel. And they need to be taught not to do that. Paul says back in 1 Corinthians 11, God disciplines so that we won't be condemned along with the world. There's a greater concern than our comfort in that moment. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, it's, we handed this one over so that his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Right? The concern ultimately is a loving concern. 1 Timothy here, so that they'll be taught not to blaspheme the name of the Lord. So we're not just being punitive. It's not vindictive. It's not judgmental. 
after a long time and it's clear and evident to everybody, then as a church, we make it known and we pull back that protective covering of the fellowship of the body. You expose them, as it were. Right? You're exposing somebody to the elements and the difficulties and the dangers of the world out there, hoping that as they shiver and as they're ravaged by lions, hoping, figuratively speaking, right, that they'll look back and that they'll see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ among his people, and they'll return in repentance to the faith and the keeping of a good conscience and you find them back in with your shoulder to shoulder fighting the good fight. That's the hope. But that's what you do if you have to. It's not where you want to get, but it's what is done. So, Father, thank you for your word. The importance, as Paul has laid it out for us in this first chapter, of doctrine and living coinciding and having consistency that they cohere together. Uh, the blessedness of the gospel existing among your people, that it's a reminder continually of your grace to us, that it brings humility to us, and yet great delight in our hearts as we remember all that you've done for us. God, the charge that has been given to Timothy here, as he is an elder and a teacher and instructor in the church, and yet Uh, That is a a baton that is passed down from him to others and to others and all the way to our day. And so it's something uh, that is generally we see and understand even in the Great Commission to go declare the gospel and then teach and instruct. And so it's something we all uh, have a responsibility for, uh, that we would uh, just pray that we would be faithful to that. God, that doctrine, theology would be a concern for us that we would have a desire to know it. And as we learn it, God, that you give us great joy in learning the deep things that you've made known to us, that we would see your goodness in a new way that we haven't before in what we study. We would know your mercies. God, that we would see and be overawed by your glory, that it would have its work in us, that our life would be in keeping with your word, and that you would even use us, even us, as you work in our lives, and as the words fall and tumble from our lips about Jesus, that Jesus could so graciously use us to draw others to yourself, O Lord. And so let us be earnest, as Paul's instructing Timothy here, to be earnest about the place of sound theology. And Lord, let us be willing, should it be necessary, even to carry uh, correction out to its fullest end. God, our concern, the great concern, being the honor and the glory of your name and the salvation and the eternal life of those who profess your name. And so God, strengthen us and bless us and keep us as we go today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.